Hi, I'm Jonathan from Ann Arbor, Michigan. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Real sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum fun, maximum fun, maximum fun. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program is David A. Price. Uh, his new book is called The Pixar Touch, The Making of a Company. It's a history of the Pixar company from animation hardware company to uh, international media super phenomenon. Uh, David, welcome to The Sound of Young America. So I was surprised to learn. I mean, I guess I was probably on board the Pixar phenomenon relatively early on, having watched their short films in, uh, you know, touring animation shows as a little kid. But I was surprised to learn that the whole operation sort of had its roots in Utah. That's right. Um, the uh, computer graphics work, really, uh, a lot of it started out at the University of Utah in the computer science department there. Um, Ed Catmull was this guy who, uh, growing up in Salt Lake City, wanted to be an animator, uh, realized in high school that he just couldn't draw, um, but he had a knack for math, and, and he goes into college and studies math and physics, gets his PhD uh, working in computer graphics, which at that point is really almost at the lunatic fringe. You have to remember, this is the early 1970s when just getting a still image out of a computer was an amazing accomplishment, let alone thinking in terms of movies. But that's where he was. I mean, even the idea of like putting something into a computer and the computer having a display rather than it generating a new set of punch cards or right, whatever. Right, right. That was completely mind-blowing to people then. When he came to be uh, kind of unemployed and uh, adrift that uh, the company sort of started to have its set down its roots, um, he, he's going around looking for jobs. Um, he takes a job that doesn't have anything to do particularly with computer graphics. Tell me about how he... Uh, tell me about his first benefactor. Right. He, um, uh, like you said, he's working in this job that he feels like is a dead-end job. He's this newly minted PhD. There's no careers in computer animation, right, because he's so far ahead of everybody else. Then he gets a call from this secretary. He has no idea why she's calling, but she's trying to set him up to come out to New York for some reason. And finally, he figures out it's for a job interview. And there's this guy named Alex Schur, who's, who's the head of a, a or institution called the New York Institute for Technology, who has this vision of doing computer animation. He's gotten the Hollywood bug, and he's hired a bunch of animators, I mean, like a hundred of them, working on just a regular old-timey 2D cell-animated film. That's the only kind of animation there was then. And he's watching these people work, and he's thinking, eh, computers could do that, which isn't really true. I mean, the, <laughs> um, I mean, you still need animators to do computer animation, but this was his idea. And um, he's this really uh, delightfully uh, eccentric guy who um, uh, uh, people 
called his way of talking a, a word salad. He would just sort of spew out this eloquent nonsense, <laughs> and sort of you know every you know ten percent of it would make a little bit of sense. And if you wanted to try to you know get something across to him, you just sort of you would talk over him, and then eventually he'd be repeating your words back to you, and that was how you understood. That's that's how you knew that he got what you were telling him. So anyway, he's the first big patron. <laughs> where I mean, is his? Can I interrupt you and ask yeah. where his eccentric millions came from? You know, no one's a hundred percent sure about that. Um, there's different <laughs> there's different theories about that, but he he's he's got this money, and he he's the first guy who comes along and bankrolls the development of computer animation, and that's his key contribution. He pulls he gets Ed Catmull, who later turns out to be the founding technical genius of Pixar, and lets Ed go out and hire a bunch of other people, and so they start on on Long Island on this. Uh, this estate that he owns, they're they're doing this work and getting computer animation started. He he sets him up as a basically a researcher at a, a university that he's created um, called uh, the New York Institute of Technology. Right. Oh, in reading the book, I found myself wondering like how many steps this this university was from like. Uh, you know, Barbizon learn to be a model or just look like one. I think, I mean, I don't want to insult anybody who's going there now because it, it's probably totally different now. But at that time, it was probably about you know, one quarter of a step above <laughs> that <laughs> level of being a diploma mill, basically. And um, uh, But he's got all this money from that and, and maybe from other sources. And he's he's totally separately got Ed Catmull's uh, computer animation group going. So tell me a little bit about what was the work that they were trying to do uh, at, at that point in the in the early mid 1970s. Well, there's really just this whole open field of problems to be solved. So uh, some folks are working on how to make computers assist 2D animation to do the so-called in-betweening. Of, of poses. In other words, an animator draws a pose and then another pose and the, the computer does all the steps in between. And then there were other folks working on what we recognize today as computer animation, the 3D geometry and figuring out how to, how to display that and what algorithms work, um, how to make it look good. There was one of the problems that, uh, one of the problems that there was in computer animation that blew my mind that they had to tackle was just the simple the simple premise of how do you make something that's behind something not show up on the screen that's right you know it's amazing how many problems there are in computer graphics that sound just that simple how do you figure out which object is in front of the other one and that turned out to be a really hard problem to solve and Ed Catmull solved that in his PhD thesis it's one of several major discoveries that he had when he was a grad student. Tell me about when artistic ambitions entered this project, when it stopped being about abstractions and started being about creating something. They, I mean, this group of people, I think, always had the ambition that it would someday become an artistic medium um, and that they could be part of that. There was a film that this Alex Schur character uh, produced and directed called Tubby the Tuba that was done by this team of traditional animators. And after, at the end of two years of work, everybody's together in this uh, theater watching it, the, the first screening of it. 
and Ed Catmull and uh, Alvy Ray Smith and, and the other people who he brought on board are just watching this and realizing this just stinks. I mean, this is just the worst <laughs> thing they've ever seen. And they realize, you know, you know, this guy and, and all of his money is not going to get them where they need to go. And so it really forces them to think, you know, well, where can we find someone who knows storytelling and who can sort of start to get us where we need to be there? Tell me about how they found that person. Well, it was really uh, a great accident of history. Uh, George Lucas calls uh, not too long after after this happens because he wants to be able to use computers in filmmaking. He's not interested in computer animation, but this is just after the success of Star Wars and, and everybody, uh, which of course was amazing to everybody at the time. And he has the notion of taking his Star Wars millions and using some of that money to fund the development of digital film editing and digital sound editing and, and, and things like this. And so he recruits this group out of NYIT to come over out to California to the Bay Area to work on these projects that he wants. Uh, they secretly have their eye on computer animation and they, they wind up making contact with this uh, young Disney animator named John Lasseter who uh, has gotten interested in computer animation himself. He's seen some test footage from Tron. You probably remember that movie. And uh, so they they make a connection. And uh, in the late 83, John Laster is fired from Disney, uh, which is amazing. He's just this incredible talent at that point. He's won two Student Academy Awards for his student animated films that he did when he was in college. And... Um, but he's basically, he's just too ambitious for the Walt Disney Company of the time. And uh, so he gets kicked out. And uh, when the the Lucasfilm people now, as as they are, find out that he's available, they hire him as quickly as they can. And, so, and that's how sort of this beautiful synergy gets started. When Lasseter joins the uh, organization that would later become Pixar... Um, he's he's mostly joining a technology company. And certainly, as you described it, George Lucas was mostly in it to try and figure out, you know, a way to make a Star Wars movie without having to make a, a million tiny TIE fighters um, out of Sculpey or whatever they make them out of. Um, what were his artistic ambitions within this, uh, within this computer animation company that was... Uh, that was focusing on technology. Well, when um, Ed Catmull and the other technical guys find Lasseter and they find him available, they're just incredibly excited because he's the one animator, the one real animator they found who gets the idea that this can be a medium where you can do great work. You know, maybe it's not there now, but it's going to be there as the technology gets better. And so they see him as being this incredible prize catch he also buys into this vision obviously and is very excited to find a place um that sees eye to eye with him were the people who were working within the uh organization that later became pixar ambitious about the artistic side of this in, in addition to the technical side absolutely I mean, from the beginning uh their their thought was that if they if they wait, if they can hang in there long enough for the, the computer power to get where they needed it to be, 
they wanted to be the next Disney. I mean, and, and of course, that's exactly what happened. I mean, they were just uh, the vision that they had was just incredible in how on the mark it was. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Price. His new book is The Pixar Touch. We'll have more with David Price when we return in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you want a taste of the lighter side of MaximumFun.org, try searching for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes or visiting our blog and clicking on Jordan Jesse Go. It's an irreverent talk show for children of all ages, except for children. And it's absolutely free via podcast from MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Price. His new book about the history of Pixar animation is called The Pixar Touch. Let's get back to my interview. It seems like the company was a tremendous disappointment in a lot of ways to George Lucas and, and his ambitions for it. How, how did it end up being sold for just a couple of million dollars to, to Steve Jobs? Well, when it gets to be 85, there's a, a number of reasons why George Lucas and his executives decide to get rid of this group that they've assembled, the, the computer graphics group of, of uh, Lucasfilm. It's around 40 people at this point. And uh, he's realizing, I mean, number one, he's divorced and, and the company's actually having cash problems, believe it or not. I and mean, Star Wars is you know, the most successful film in history probably at that point. Um, but he, he actually has some financial pressures that are leading him to want to start spinning things off. And so this computer graphics group is, is one of them. And then there's also... A big difference in vision. I mean, you know, they want to do computer animation. He doesn't care about computer animation. So he starts uh, shopping the group around. They've developed a special computer for doing just you know high, high, high-end graphics work. It's called the Pixar Image Computer. And that's where the name Pixar comes from. It was a word they invented for this, for this computer. It's this $125,000 box that... Um, could do graphics work faster than a supercomputer could. And so that's going to be the product. And, and that's the concept that the Lucasfilm guys have. They'll spin off this little division and turn it into a computer company, and then whoever takes it over can exploit this computer and, and populate the world with Pixar image computers. And it takes them a long time to sell it. Um, and they're, they're, they shopped it around to a couple, do, a couple, couple dozen uh, venture capitalists, investment banks, uh, all the big computer companies, and just no one's interested. And finally, Steve Jobs, um, who's been sort of watching from the sidelines here, comes along when they're just about ready to, to shut it down and offers them a third of the asking price. And there's nobody else who wants it, so he gets it for $5 million. So how then did Pixar go from this resounding flop of a hardware box? It was a box that flopped even harder than the next computer. Yes. Um, to being a company that was actually going to be focused on creating entertainment. Well, there's a couple things that work out for them very well. Uh, first of all, they wind up getting a consulting deal with Disney to computerize some of the traditional animation work that Disney is doing. Uh, even though uh, Steve doesn't have 
animation in his veins. The other guys, the employees do. And so they're very interested in being able to get in the door with Disney and get something going with them. And so they're able to get a contract to create this computer animation production system uh, using their software, using their computers. And so that gets the relationship going. And then at the same time, you know, John Lasseter, you know, sweating it out in the hallway, working these uh, insane hours to get the short films ready for, for the annual technical conferences that the computer graphics community has. He's winning awards for these things. I mean, people love John Lasseter's short movies. And you know, every time one of these movies comes out, you know, Disney's coming along and offering to bring him back to be an animator. And he's saying no, because he realizes that he's making history where he is. And then finally things come to a head, and Jeffrey Katzenberg brings Pixar in uh, for meetings and tells them, look, John Lasseter won't work for me, so I'm going to make it work this other way. I want you, Pixar, to make a movie for us, which is, this, which is Disney's first time doing anything like that. What was the relationship between Pixar and Disney like as um, as the very first Pixar feature film, Toy Story, was being made? Well, it was a tough thing. I mean, you have to understand that um, Pixar is, is completely at Disney's mercy. When, uh, when Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, brings uh, Steve Jobs and John Lasseter and all the rest in there to talk with them about the idea of doing a project together and they start negotiating uh the pixar guys have the bright idea of start of of shopping the project around to other studios right to give them leverage um standard operating procedure and everybody else turns them down columbia turns them down (laughs) paramount turns them down everybody and so basically disney gives them this incredibly one-sided deal which is basically take it or leave it and and of course they take it toy story was extraordinarily successful at a time when uh when after its renaissance disney animation was just starting to fade again um it's a fade that's that's really gotten bad the past five or ten Mm -hmm. years but it was just starting to head downhill yep um after having this really enormous resounding success and having this arrangement work out so fantastically well for everybody involved, basically. Um, how did things go sour between Pixar and Disney? Well, a, a lot of it was was at a personal level. Now, after Toy Story is this huge hit, you know, the number one film of, of uh, 95, um, Steve Jobs does renegotiate the contract, and so it's not nearly... As, as one-sided. In fact, it's 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 pretty well balanced. Um, but as time goes on, the relationships deteriorate between the top guys, between Michael Eisner and Steve Jobs. And one of the things that uh, I I came away from the whole process of writing this book with was seeing how clearly personality trumps everything else. It it seems it seems like. In um, in corporate decision making, I've I've seen that in other contexts, but it was especially clear here. I mean, there was just this incredible animus that Steve Jobs felt toward Michael Eisner, basically feeling like there was a level of disrespect, and so it, it's really that that sets him off on his on his uh, 
campaign basically to humiliate Michael Eisner by having this protracted renegotiation period and then finally walking. Tell me about how that finally was resolved. Michael Eisner loses his job, not just because (laughs) of that, but certainly in part because of that. Um, uh, Shareholders uh, perceive uh, correctly that he was a stumbling block in, in the relationship between Disney and Pixar, which had become incredibly important to the company. I mean, I, I mentioned that at the start of the relationship, when they when they have the Toy Story deal signed in 91, Pixar is basically, you know, a supplicant. I mean, they're taking whatever they can get. Well, by this time, by the, uh, by the, by the late 90s, early 2000s, um, Disney is just completely dependent on Pixar. I mean, their, their movies make up uh, around 45% of the, uh, of the operating income from, uh, from Disney feature films. So, uh, you know, the tables have really turned and, um, and that is something that Roy Disney uses very successfully in, in getting uh, Michael Eisner ousted from the company. Bob Iger was Michael Eisner's replacement and uh, he, he and Steve Jobs negotiated uh, a, a joining of the two companies um, that uh, that neatly sidestepped all of the uh, possible, you know, all of the various possible dissolution scenarios of what had been a, 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 a working agreement. Um, what did he hope to get from Pixar? Besides just these Pixar movies that had been making the Disney company so much money, was was there more than just those films that were in development that he was trying to tap into with a, a very generous deal in, for Pixar? Well, Bob Iger was all about, number one, repairing the relationship. I mean, while uh, Pixar and Disney were in contention when, when Michael Eisner was running things, uh, Steve Jobs's uh, animosity was just off the charts. I mean, he was bad mouthing Disney movies, and and uh, it was it was uh, really really kind of uh, uh, amazing to to watch. But um, so I mean, his number one objective is to you know fix the relationship, which he's able to do with his acquisition. Beyond that, I mean, the acquisition was kind of controversial at the time, uh, and I guess you could still you know maybe second guess it in that. Disney wasn't really getting a lot that was tangible for the money that it spent. There's a $7.4 billion deal. When you take out Pixar's cash on hand, it was $6.3 billion. So they're paying all this money, but for what? They already had the rights to Pixar's library. and They could already distribute the films, use the characters in the theme parks, all the rest, make sequels. Um, so they're basic for six point three billion dollars. They're basically getting a collection of talent. Um, but I, I think that um, Bob Iger perceived that he needed to pay the price uh, because, as you say, I mean, uh, Disney Animation was just you know having really tough times, and they just it seemed like they couldn't do anything right. Uh, and that's and then had been going on for years. It was a time of uh, the movie Treasure Planet. Yes. Not to get all fox and the hound. <laughs> it's funny that in in some ways the uh, the growth and development of Pixar uh, parallels the growth and development in the early years of of Disney. 
Can you tell me about what, what were the what were the similarities in, between the two? Well, you're really right there. I mean, uh, Walt Disney, after he died, all the executives were sort of spending all their time trying to figure out, well, what would Walt do? Well, and Walt's thing was he didn't follow a pattern. He wasn't this cookie-cutter type of guy. I mean, he was this incredibly innovative um, uh, business. I mean, he's, he's also, uh, you know, famous for, for the movies he was involved in. But if you look at his, his record of technical innovations and business innovations, um, you know, he's the first to put sound into animation, first to put full color into animation, first, uh, American animated feature film. Um, he's, you know, today we, uh, talk a lot about you know, merchandise, you know, isn't that exploitative and, and all. Well, he was right on top of that from the beginning. I mean, he's, he's licensing his characters to, to different companies. He's using uh, his, his TV show to promote his theme park. He's using his theme park to promote his characters. So he's a very crafty businessman as well as being a very, um, he has this real appetite to find new ways to use technology and storytelling. And I think that sort of sensibility of, of wanting to use technology is something that you see very clearly in, in Pixar's philosophy, too. There's also, it seems like, something else that's different about uh, Pixar films. And when you call the book the Pixar Touch, it, it feels like it's not just about um, technology. What's the difference between the animated films that we were seeing before Pixar and even just outside of Pixar contemporaneously to Pixar um, and uh, Toy Story and The Incredibles and, and all these uh, amazing films that Pixar's created? Well, I think um, that's another parallel with, with, with Walt Disney, and, and maybe you're sort of you know, diplomatically trying to get me to say that, but I, mean, but I think if you are, you're right. I mean, uh, Walt Disney's films that he was involved in early on um, were not just children's films. He was very interested in, in creating films that would involve the whole audience, I mean, adults and, and children. And, and I think that's really a trademark of, of Pixar's movies, too. Set aside Cars, which I think is, is kind, of, kind of a different... Uh, kind of a horse of a different color there. But, I mean, the other films uh, are made very smartly and in a way that involves the the grown-up audience as well as the, the, the children's audience. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Jesse. And David A. Price is the author of The Pixar Touch, The Making of a Company. That's our time for another Sound of Young America podcast. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Chris Bowman is the intern. We're online at MaximumFun.org. And if you'd like to email me, my personal email address, yes, it's my real email address, is jesse at MaximumFun.org. If you visit MaximumFun.org, you'll find our daily updated blog, our cool discussion forums, and our other shows, which you should really listen to if you haven't listened to them yet. I mean, at least give them a chance, for gosh sakes. That's all online at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. Music